Dr. Trennis Magnus punches reality. Or at least I think this is going to be an episode of Trennis Magnus punches reality. Guys, look, the truth is, uh, I had an idea for this episode that I originally thought about releasing as an episode of Trennis Magnus jabs reality reason being is i'm not really sure how long this episode is going to be if i just talk about the subject at hand don't really have a whole lot of bullet points uh, or for that matter any real notes and so I was, it's mostly just going to be like a shoot from the hip type of thing and so for those reasons i'm really not sure how long this is going to be and there is a sense in which the duration of a given episode kind of determines whether or not it's an episode of trinus magnus jabs reality versus Trinus Magnus punches reality. The jab reality episodes are supposed to be just kind of, well, as the name might suggest, just sort of quick, easy episodes, or maybe they're about episodes that don't relate specifically to the subject matter of Trinus Magnus punches reality. It's kind of a fuzzy set of criteria, I'll be the first to admit. So, but anyway, all of this is kind of a long way of saying I'm really not sure if this is going to be an episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality or Trinus Magnus Jabs Reality, but either way, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and obviously I'm all over the map today because, well, as I say, I'm not completely sure how I'm going to be releasing this episode or when I'm going to be releasing this episode. But anyway, flying by the seat of my pants here a little bit. But basically, what happened was last night I... I finally got around to watching uh, the movie Tolkien, right? Which, as the name might suggest, it's it's basically a bio movie about the author J.R.R. Tolkien, and somehow I've sort of acquired like a rep uh, of being a, like a big, I almost want to say like an authority on all things Tolkien, and guys, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I enjoy Lord of the Rings, but it's like anything. I don't think that simply liking one or two things is enough to really call yourself a fan of something. You know what I mean? Like, are you really a fan of Spider-Man if all you enjoy is the Lee Romita stuff? Well, the answer might be no, you know? So anyway, but either way, I really do like Lord of the Rings. And obviously I took a tremendous amount of interest in uh, Tolkien when news about it first sprung up. I must have been out taking a leak or something when this movie was announced because they were in they were basically getting ready to release the first teaser for the movie before I found out this motherfucker even existed, right? So I don't know. Uh, there's a thing called the pulse of the fan community and my finger is nowhere fucking near it, I guess. I don't know. But uh, either way, you know, the first teaser came along and this, this instantly became a priority for me. This is definitely something that I would want to watch, right? And so that was very much the plan. And then the release date came out, and um, going off memory here, well, a little bit me uh, memory and a little bit of uh, text that I stole off of uh, Wikipedia, but uh, long and the short of it is, guys, um, my memory of it is that this movie, ah, here it is, the release date for this movie was um, May the 10th in the United States, uh, May the 3rd in the UK because Tolkien, I guess, but May the 10th in the United States, which is obviously where I live, and guys, 
it's not that I didn't care, or it's not that I wasn't invested in this movie, or anything like that. It's just, guys, the issue was, um, I was in the process of getting married and then settling into kind of newlywed life a little bit at the time that this movie came out, and so there might have been a chance to, to, uh, to see Tolkien in theaters during my mini-moon when my wife and I went to, well, we went to uh, Dallas for our mini-moon, except that that, we got married on May the 4th, and then on May the 5th, uh, we headed out to Dallas, and the movie wasn't in theaters yet, and honestly, maybe that's just as well, because Endgame was in theaters, and that was a definite priority for my wife to see, not less so for me, I would say, but definitely Endgame was a priority for my wife, and so whatever happened, happened, or didn't happen, as the case may be, and so I just never got a chance to see Tolkien in theaters, and then after that, movies like this are not in theaters for very long, and then they get swiftly withdrawn, and then that's pretty much that. And I think, it, this again, this is just my opinion here, but I think a, an adequate summary of what happened to Tolkien in theaters is it pretty much fucking bombed. This just was not the runaway sensation that swept the nation. And there's an argument that May especially getting near the middle of May. May is just the wrong type of year to release this type of film. Maybe you'd want to aim for uh, the early, mid, or late fall, or the winter, or something like that. But May, generally speaking, is just kind of a fucked up time to release a movie like Tolkien, right? And so I, I don't know if that's the sole factor that goes into... Uh, Tolkien's box office demise, but I can't help but think that's got a little, or for that matter, a major part in terms of what, exa what exactly it was that happened to this movie. We'll never know. Either way, though, this, uh, it definitely had a, uh, not very good box office run, and honestly, guys, it doesn't seem like the critical reception for this movie was much better. So, the question to ask is, what did I think? Well, guys, again, I am not some kind of big... <clears throat> I'm not a big uh, uh, Tolkien scholar or anything like that. I'm certainly not any kind of a, uh, an authority on the guy's published works, much less the biographical details of his life. So, <clears throat> what I saw in the film, it seemed like it more or less lined up with what I know of the guy's life story, but, and obviously we're going to be getting into spoilers here, spoilers for the movie, uh, we're going to be getting into those here a little bit, but, uh, guys, Tolkien had a kind of an unusual life, you know, um, my sense of the guy's life, and how do you really know? You know, how well could you possibly know something like this? But my sense of Tolkien's life is that he had a mighty interesting childhood. And then he had a mighty interesting adolescence. And then he had another mighty interesting college career. And then he had a mighty interesting uh, military career. <clears throat> but then probably about the time that the guy was like 25 or something like that, he pretty much 
settled down, and he lived a fairly quiet life from that point forward. So how do you make <clears throat> how do you make a bio movie out of somebody's uh, life story when you know I'm not trying to be disrespectful or anything here, but let's face it, the most interesting things in this guy's life had happened and were completed before he was 25. How do you do that? You know, I've been watching not a lot of bio movies lately, but I've been watching a fair number of bio movies. And you you take something like The Aviator, where this, the sort of narrative time frame of The Aviator is, I would say, sometime in like the early or mid-1920s, going right on through to about the late 1940s or early 1950s and through there. And a lot of really interesting shit happened to Howard Hughes during that period. There's more than enough grist for the mill there, I think, to make an engaging bio movie. And indeed, Martin Scorsese did. So clearly he, he had the right instincts for this, I think. Tolkien, on the other hand, I mean... Really, how much can you really say about about the guy's childhood? He was partially orphaned. And then into his adolescence, he was completely orphaned. I mean, you know, there's it's got to be a lot harder to, to, to turn this guy's life in, into an engaging film. All right? Uh, he led the life that he led. And then he, like I say, things pretty much quieted down for him by about the age of 25 or so. Then he lived the rest of his life pretty quietly, I would say. You know, he, he had my sense. It's not like I ever met the guy. I mean, the guy died like 10 years before I was 10 or 12 or something. I don't know. 50, I don't know. It was, it was a long time is the point. He died a long time before I was born. And so it's not like I ever met the guy or anything, but it's just my sense of, of uh, Professor Tolkien is that he he was an introvert by nature anyway, but it's just a lot of the things uh, that really defined his life defined his worldview, those things had pretty much finished before he was even 30, you know? And so from there on in, you know, he was a scholar, he was an academic, and I guess you could say an itinerant author, you know? But I don't know. And so I guess what I'm saying is what we get is fine. I can kind of see, you know, where critics might have rebelled against this movie a little bit because it is true that the narrative that we get in this movie it is kind of thin but one of the things that i that i that i got you know watching this movie was i'm not going to go so far as to say that tolkien as a film is basically the the jrr tolkien equivalent of Shakespeare in Love. I'm not going to say that. Number one, I don't think that's true. And number two, it seems a little bit snarky. But it's like at the same time, just to watch the movie, you see influences of things that I think we're supposed to assume led to the creation of things such as, well, I don't know, uh, uh, Ringwraiths, uh, The Shire, uh, Smaug, The Dragon, uh, Sauron. Um, you might... If you squint a little bit, you might even be able to see Saruman lurking around in there a little bit. Uh, the creation of hobbits, you know, uh, just other things that I don't know. I, again, I am not an authority on 
on Tolkien's life or his published works or anything like that, but based upon exactly nothing, I guess, I guess I assumed that the first inkling of anything to do with Middle-earth that Tolkien ever had, it was either during or after the Battle of the Somme. And he basically started sketching out what would become the story, The Fall of Gondolin. And it was basically, I guess, like the beginning of the Book of Lost Tales. And it, it was just basically something that he that he just sort of sketched out. And he didn't really have, you know, fully formed. In fact, there's an argument he never really finished that story. But whatever, that's maybe another topic for another time. But... It just seems like there are certain elements of Lord of the Rings specifically that <clears throat> Tolkien as a film sort of hints at that, you know, maybe these things got their start in some way or another in the Battle of the Somme from World War One, And, you know, for things like the pass, uh, uh, Frodo, Sam, and Gollum's passage through the Dead Marshes, you know what? I'm not here to say that that is absolutely true. That is definitely where it came from. But it may not have been. All I'm saying is it wouldn't be a major surprise. When you look at how similar the Battle of the Somme already is to the Dead Marshes in Lord of the Rings, you know, with the fires and, you know, the dead bodies and, you know, just the very fact of this great battle that took place there, which obviously has major implications on Middle-earth itself, you know, to me, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see some connective tissue between the Battle of the Somme and its aftermath, uh, and then connecting that with the Dead Marshes, okay? Uh, I, can, I can see that argument. But other things, like I say, uh, the Ringwraiths and all these other things, I just don't know. It does seem a little bit first, like, 10 or 15 minutes of... Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where it's like everything that 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 came to define Indiana Jones as a human being, basically happened to him inside of ten minutes, in his when he was like about sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and through there. And it's kind of a funny little bit in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but you know this is you know Tolkien. This is really somebody's life, and I just I would be shocked. Put it that way. I would be really amazed if so much of so much of this uh, iconic Middle Earth lore happened in the bottle uh, during the Battle of the Somme, right? Like I say, uh, uh, ring wraiths, uh, dragons, uh, uh, Sauron, you know, things like that. If all that stuff happened, maybe it did. Maybe it did. Shit, it's not like I was there. Although, you know who else was at the Battle of, uh, of the Somme besides uh, Tolkien? Adolf Hitler, oddly enough. So, obviously, you know, they were on different sides of the battlefield. Different sides, in fact. But, yeah, they, they were there uh, together, quote-unquote. And so, anyway, I, just, I always thought that was just kind of a weird little fact of history. But anyway, yeah, so, uh, Tolkien and Hitler, that's... As far as I know, that's as physically close as they ever came to one another. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is, you know, maybe all of these um, Middle-earth concepts, they were inspired by some of Tolkien's experiences during the Battle of the Somme. Or here's another one. 
uh, Tol uh, Tolkien's, they call him Batman. All right. Uh, this is, uh, I don't want to try describing something that, let's face it, this really has no antecedent in uh, the American military tradition, but at least in the, the British military tradition, there is an, an office or rank or station or just whatever you want to call it called Batman. And Tolkien's Batman is named Sam. Frodo's Batman is also named Sam. So some people may want to see some, again, some similarities and some connective tissue there. And honestly, that one really wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there's an argument that the only reason that Tolkien survived the Battle of the Somme is because of Sam, the Batman. So I don't know. Um, anyway, but in terms of, you know, like the actual drama of the story, at least for me, guys, this this really shined a light on a bunch of shit that I at least never knew. Because again, I am not an authority on on, on, on Tolkien's life. You know, I mean, I do know that Actually, you know, we'll circle back to that. I'm just, point is, I'm not an authority on his life. So the the true meaning and importance that the uh, TCBS had to Tolkien, I guess I'd never, I mean, I'd heard of the TCBS, but I'd never really fully understood, like, what that club was and I guess what that level of friendship meant to Tolkien. But when you think about it, I mean, it is kind of logical to think that, you know, here Tolkien was, he was partially orphaned when he was a small child. And then he was fully orphaned when he was an adolescent. He was looking for some kind of friendship or stability, some kind of loyalty or com uh, camaraderie, and found it when he was in school with his uh, school friends. And I think that far and above just the value of friendship that most people have anyway. I think for Tolkien in particular, this this club, it would have inspired him on a creative level uh, with, you know, with, with his own work. But I think there's also the personal angle that this is the closest thing to a, a big family that he'd ever had before. And so I guess that's something that I'd never really thought to contextualize too much in terms of his life and who and and who these people were and what they meant to him and all that and honestly i mean looking back at it now i guess maybe it is kind of obvious but for whatever reason the true importance of that never really sank in for me so there was that another interesting bit of business related to edith bratt now this i did know a little bit more about not much but a little bit i mean if you if you know anything at all and i do mean anything at all about Professor Tolkien, one of the things that you're going to figure out real quick is that Edith Bratt really was his one and only, you know? Um, as far as anybody knows, he never dated or even showed any kind of romantic interest in anybody except Edith Bratt. And so the circumstances behind the two of them meeting one another, again, I just never knew that. I thought, okay, well, one day here comes Edith Bratt, and then they get married, and then that's that. No, there was a lot of drama that goes into that. And again, it's like Professor Tolkien lived an entire life in, in, during his first 25 years. And again, it just makes for a challenging s story to adapt into film. And so, you know, I try not to go too hard on the movie for having such a narrow narrative focus when, when you think about it, there's really not a whole lot else about the guy's life that is 
dramatically appropriate for adaptation into film. But this, you know, goings on with Edith, with uh, Edith Bratt, guys, maybe it's just the chemistry that that actress has with Nicholas Holt, who plays Tolkien. Maybe I don't know why, but whatever it is, it's like I buy the fact that, you know what, Edith, all the girls that Tolkien ever met, she's the one that got to him. Because, number one, they were in the same school together. Number two, they had so much in common just as people, you know, just in terms of their interests. They were different enough to be interesting, I think, to one another. But they were still different enough to have something to talk about, you know. But then there there are other similarities that, you know what, they were both orphans. And so they both understood what an orphan's life is really like, you know. And there's not a whole lot of glamour to it, you know. And... I could see that just on that level alone, if nothing else, they would have gravitated towards one another because they both understood the the pain of that life in a way that other people might not have, you know? And I don't know. It's just all in all, everything that has anything to do with uh, Tolkien and Edith in the movie, I buy it, you know? it. I absolutely buy it. And... More to that, I can even see where somebody like her would have inspired Tolkien to create characters like like Luthien and Arwen. You know, I that just seems I don't know, that just seems very logical to me. I I buy it. And so a lot of this I think really does come down to the cast. And speaking of the cast, this is an amazingly good cast. The I think the the challenge that you have when you make movies like this is you have to find actors that embody other characters. And I mean this far and beyond just your lead character, which obviously is Tolkien. I mean, that's got to be hard enough to cast. But you have to be able to find actors who can embody the one or two or three different qualities that, for narrative purposes, have to define who these supporting characters are in this story that you're telling, even though these are not supporting characters and this is not a story. These were real-life people, and they interacted with history, with life, with Tolkien, in their own unique ways, you know? And so all of this is to say that this there is, not, there is nary a false note to be found anywhere in the cast for this movie. This is an absurdly well-cast movie. And again, as with Edith, you know, the, uh, the the other members of the TCBS, you can see where, you know, there would have been rivalries, there would have been small conflicts, but at the same time, there also would have been understanding and mutual acceptance, loyalty, fellowship. I can see where, you know, Tolkien, he had very human relationships with all of these kids, and it's just, it's easy to get your head around. Or at least it was easy for me to get my head around. So uh, anyway. So now there is one kind of obvious omission. If you... I don't think you need to know a whole lot about Professor Tolkien to know that at least if you read... I would say especially uh, The Lord of the Rings. Only a Catholic could have written Lord of the Rings. There are some very clear and distinct references to the Catholic faith, and it so happens that that uh, Tolkien was a very devout Catholic. I suppose in today's world, 
I suppose in today's world, we would probably call him a trad. He was a very trad Catholic. Maybe, I'm not prepared to say he would be a rad trad, but definitely a trad Catholic. And one of the things that I discovered, you know, just, I was trying to do a little bit of prep uh, for this episode. And so I did just, you know, a little bit of reading about uh, Tolkien just as a person. And one of the things that I discovered as it relates to Catholicism, one of the things that I discovered was that when the Mass of uh, Pope Paul VI was uh, introduced, this is the, the new Mass, the Novus Ordo. Tolkien never really accepted Novus Ordo Mass. So, you know, when, you know, Tolkien's whole life, I mean, and keep in mind, guys, this happened in the 60s. So Tolkien was definitely getting up there. I mean, this is not very long before the guy died, as far as I know. The Mass was revised to be no longer in Latin but rather in uh, vernacular. So, you know, but prior to that, you know, Tolkien's whole life, um, let me think what the, uh, what, what the uh, call and response is. Um, the, in, in Novus Ordo Mass, the, the uh, priest would say, <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the Lord be, be with you. And um, in Novus Ordo Mass, you would say, and with your spirit, right? You would just say that in English, the, or in English, because I'm American and we speak English here. So, <clears throat> but you would, you, that's what you would say in, um, in uh, uh, vernacular. Uh, he says, the Lord be with you. And then you say, uh, and, and with your spirit. Although actually, you know what, now that I think about it in the sixties, I don't know if that, particular revision had been, I don't know if that revision, I think, actually, you know what, I take that back. I think in the 60s, they would say, and also with you. But that was actually corrected later on. But prior to that point, and this is what I'm trying to say, prior to that point, Mass was in Latin. And so the priest, uh, the priest would say, Dominus Vobiscum. And the response for that is, Ecum Spiritu Tuo. And so that's what Tolkien would say. The, the the priest would say, the Lord be with you. And Tolkien would say, apparently rather loudly, ecum spiritatuo, because this was kind of a statement of, this is, I refuse to accept, you, you know, this, you know, vernacular language. I refuse to say this in English. This is a sacred thing. It's supposed to be in Latin. I'm giving you my responses in Latin. If you don't like it, well, too bad for you. And... Honestly, guys, that was, um, I, I gotta tell you, I, I was caught very much off guard by that because when I go to mass and when the priest says the Lord be with you guys, I don't want to get lost in uh, a, a, a tangent here and go into a bunch of stuff that has really nothing to do with the subject at hand, except it does have something to do with the subject at hand. So whatever, but, um, I basically made a little bit of a detour into the Anglican world at some point and really just fell in love with their liturgy. Okay. I really love, uh, the book of common prayer, right? One that is amazing, right? I just, I really like it. So when you go to Catholic mass, I found myself saying rather than, and with your spirit, sometimes I would say, and with thy spirit and other times, Maybe I'm kind of 
I, I never knew this, but other times maybe I would side with uh, Tolkien a little bit and just whisper Acum Spiritatuo in Latin under my breath, uh, you know, because I didn't want to like draw attention to it. You don't want to be a jerk like, you know, the guy in mass that just anyway, I just I didn't want to be that guy. So I just, you know, just whisper it. I say it. I say my piece and I try to be unobtrusive about it. Uh, Tolkien, he didn't care to be unobtrusive. He would just when any any response that any response that were uh, that the laity are supposed to offer during mass, Tolkien would offer it in Latin, you know. So um, I don't know. I just I never knew that we that we had that in in common with one another, but uh, apparently we do. And um, anyway, or here's another one, you know, um, and like grant us thy peace. And then uh, I think that's one of the responses in English. And then there's also in the Latin, it's dona nobis pacem. So anyway, point is, Tolkien would do all of that. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, He would do all of that in Latin and would be, I don't, I, I don't want to say obnoxious about it, but he would definitely be loud enough as to be heard. Right. And uh, I don't know, it's just I never knew that he and I had that in common, except like I say, I don't do it loudly, I say it under my breath, but whatever. Anyway, the reason I'm I'm mentioning all this Catholic stuff, number one, Tolkien is Catholic, and number two, I don't think that's, I mean, it's kind of unmistakable in, in Tolkien, the film, if you watch it, but it's not really explicit. You don't really, I don't know, it's... One of the things that it seems that this was a controversial element for some people is that the film doesn't really make a big deal out of Tolkien's Catholic faith. And the reason that's kind of a problem is this is not, this was not an incidental detail for, for Tolkien. I mean, this is a huge influence in his life. So much so, in fact, that like I say, you it's almost impossible to read Lord of the Rings without realizing, wow, the person who wrote this is not just Catholic, but like really Catholic, you know, like trad Catholic. And so the fact that the movie didn't make a bigger deal out of that, I guess for some people that's controversial. I don't know. But um, I don't know. I, it, to me, it's clear enough if you watch it, you know, the very fact that, that uh, Tolkien is... Uh, so reliant. It, I mean, it's unmistakable that he's so reliant on uh, Father Francis that to me, it's just, it's kind of impossible to miss. It's not explicit again, but it's like at the same time, you can't really miss it either. And on balance, you know, I can't help thinking maybe, maybe that's appropriate considering the subject here, because you're never going to find Pope or Catholic, or church, or Christianity, or anything like that, if you read Lord of the Rings. But at the same time, you can't miss the symbolism either. I mean, it's it's there to be had, right? And maybe that's appropriate for a bio movie about Tolkien, that it's not explicit, but if you look at the details, it's unmistakable. You can't miss it. And so maybe maybe there's some honesty to that. I don't know. But it's just, you know, overall, I can see that as a criticism of the movie. I'm just not really sure what the validity of that is. You know, I mean, how much water does that does that really hold, you know? And uh, honestly, it's it's just tough to say. So, I don't know. I, maybe in the end, this is supposed to be uh, an issue of personal preference. I don't have a problem with it. 
But I don't know if I'm in any position to tell somebody else that they don't have a right to not have a problem with it. It's, it's all in how you look at it, I suppose. So um, anyway, but overall, I enjoy the movie and I do highly recommend it, especially if you're any kind of a, an admirer of uh, Professor Tolkien's work. I do think that there's something here. Um, there is something here to be enjoyed. So uh, maybe maybe that's maybe that's a good way to put it. So I don't know. But uh, in the main, I think that's probably about as much as I really have to say about about Tolkien as a film. Um, and I see that this episode is actually running a bit short, if anything. So a little bit too short to be an episode of um, Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm trying to pull up some feedback here, but my fucking phone is not cooperating with me. I swear to God. You know, guys, I don't like using mobile apps on my phone. You know the reason for that? Anything that I need to do on a web page, I can do just fine using uh, uh, Google Chrome on my phone, just basically using the browser. There's no good reason to use a mobile app in the great majority of cases. Yeah, for some things, you can't you can't get away from it, right? But for other things, look, it's it's just not really necessary. There are things that a mobile phone, or rather, that a mobile app can do that a web page can't, such as reach into your text messages, uh, look at your address book, scan your other apps, see what other apps you've got installed, all for marketing a bunch of fucking bullshit to you that you don't need. And so that's why I typically don't use a whole lot of mobile apps. But a lot of a lot of these uh, uh, email providers and social networks, they want you to use the goddamn mobile app. And so they go out of their fucking way to make the web page, the mobile uh, web page, um, just as big a pain in the fucking nuts to use as they possibly fucking can. God, these people just need to... Anyway, I'm just going to... Before I say anything, I'm going to regret. I'm just... Whatever. Okay, so, fine. Um, looking through uh, my email here, and God knows there's there's an awful lot of it. Um, actually, you know what? There is, there is a, a, a kind of vaguely related thing here. It touches on religion at least a tiny bit. And since I was talking about religion a second ago, maybe, well, maybe there's some kind of a connection there. This was sent in by my old friend, Gene Hendricks, who, by the way, for those of you who don't know, number one, he operates the Hammer podcast, which is all about Thor. And number two, he's he sees it as his personal uh, challenge or task to listen to every single Two True Freaks uh, podcast episode that comes out. So anything that has anything to do with the entire Two True Freaks network, he listens to. And so Gene, and my hat is off, he is a professional. So anyway, moving right along though, the title of this email is The Spectre and Other Religions. Again, this was written by Gene Hendricks and sent on February the 8th, 2017. Gene writes, Hail Magnus. Your recent episode on the Spectre got me thinking. Obviously, we're not talking about a DC Comics character, so there are some, there are some certainties that we know. First, there is a Christian god hereafter, hereafter called Jehovah, so as to avoid confusion. First, there is a Christian god around. Otherwise, this character wouldn't exist. Second, there are other gods around, whether they be the new gods or those contained in uh, the name of Shazam, 
or some other pantheon. So my question is this. If a devoted follower of another religion is to be uh, punished by the specter, what might happen? Would Jehovah and, let's say, Zeus have a sit-down and determine whose jurisdiction this guy would fall into? Would Zeus send Hermes to tell uh, the specter to knock it off? This is his worshiper. Would the specter go through uh, with the punishment and then possibly get punished himself for crossing deity lines? Um, Gene, I'm going to put... I'm going to put your your email here on a pause and say, you know, I acknowledge the fact that there are members and adherents of other of uh, other religious faiths out there that it is possible to be a theist without being specifically the type of theist that I am and all of that, but you know, one of the one of the assumptions uh, that I would have is Look, I mean, I kind of have to come at everything from a Catholic worldview, since that's the worldview from which I interact with reality. And so my view of this is that, you know, there really are no other gods. There is the God of Christianity, and then there are his enemies. And then that's that's really about it, you know? Uh, I, you know, again, all due respect to everybody who has uh, a different set of religious beliefs from me, or for that matter, no religious beliefs. I'm just telling you this is how I think things are, right? And so, you know, how would this apply to a, a you know, a fictional construct of the specter where he maybe... Oh, okay, well, here's maybe an easy example. I mean, I could... I, this is another potential minefield, but fuck it. Let's go for it. Um, a... A Muslim who is in very desperate need of the the specter's the specter's punishment. Well, Muslims serve Allah, right? And the specter is a servant of of Jehovah, the God of Christianity. So, how would that how would that work out? Or again, to to use the the example that you're running with in your email, Zeus. Uh, you know. <clears throat> I honestly don't know. Um, again, I mean, I'm starting from the a priori assumption that no other gods exist apart from, you know, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible. And again, the usual disclaimer, no offense to anybody else. That's just my opinion. You're entitled to believe whatever you want. So, um, but my sense of God is, uh, and by that, I mean, God, the father, um, again, Jehovah, he, I don't think he would respect the the uh, religious devotion that people of other religions have to their own gods, real or perceived, I don't think that 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 wouldn't matter to Jehovah. My, I, 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 mean, I again, I'm I can't crawl inside of another human being's head and tell you how things are. I certainly can't tell you how things are with God. All right. But it's just my sense is I don't think that would matter, you know? I mean, a, a key tenet of Christianity, Gene, as you may know, is that God will judge the nations. He will judge all mankind. And, well, that's the nations. That's ethnos. That's people. All races of people. And not all races of people are Christians, God knows. And yet, a key a key issue of Christianity is that God will judge them all the same, you know? 
And so I don't think that God would would draw lines on punishing his own, or for that matter, just punishing the godless, you know, the wayward. You know, I don't think he would draw the line there either. I think he would regard all of it as fair game for his judgment. And so, I mean, again, I, you know, you kind of touch upon this in your email. We are kind of getting into some kind of sketchy territory in terms of how all this would work. Because, uh, uh, Gene, if I'm miscategorizing your religious views, I want you to correct me. Because if there's anything that I resent, it's other people summarizing my religious views in a way that is simply not true. It's just fucking not true. So if I'm about to say something that is factually wrong or you just think is, uh, or for that matter, just in bad taste, I want you to correct me. Because last thing I would ever want to do is upset you or offend you or insult you or anything like that. But my sense of a lot of um, Norse pagans, or really anyone who kind of gravitates, maybe not so much towards uh, the Norse gods, but maybe more towards uh, Roman gods, or I think even the Greek gods have like some kind of following in the modern day. I get the idea they're not necessarily being literalistic in their faith. I don't think that they necessarily believe that it's a literal fact that there is a literal Zeus who literally created them. I don't know if it works that way for them. You know, and to be honest with you, I mean, uh, Gene, there are limits to how literally I want to interpret the first three books of, or rather the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And so, you know, I would be the last one to cast aspersions on anyone for not necessarily wanting to have overly literalistic um, interpretations of their own religious faith. I'm just saying that as a rule, my sense of the Odinists that I've met, and it's not like there have been all that many, but just the Odinists that I've encountered over the years, they don't necessarily hold to um, highly sectarian or overly literalistic interpretations of, of their religious views. They tend to view the gods in a kind of general sense. They, they sort of view the gods there may be some reality to that. Now, the stories and accounts of the gods that they have, those may be true, those may not be true. You know, they tend not to be, I guess what I'm saying is they tend not to be extremely doctrinaire about um, about religion. They, they abide by a certain set of ethics and morals. You know, they have certain values which guide their lives. I don't think it would necessarily be accurate to say, though, the totality of their moral universe is informed by whatever pagan religion they follow. And again, Jane, if I'm mistaken about that, I want you to correct me because I want to make sure that I'm adequately representing your religious, your religious viewpoints here. Okay. So I'm just saying, this is how I understand it to be. And if I'm wrong, I welcome your correction. So I hope you understand how this is meant here. So anyway, but, um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, assuming that they're right about that, that that is the way that it works, you know, there may not be a literal Zeus who would get offended over Jehovah judging or correcting somebody who is an adherent of, again, say Odinism or who follows Zeus or just fucking whoever. You know what I mean? I don't know that it would work that way. So, but again, I mean, I'm going way out on a limb there because... You know, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, I know a little bit about paganism, you know, a tiny bit. But as with Tolkien's published works, the last thing I would ever claim 
is to be some kind of an authority on that subject. So that's why I, I welcome your, or anybody for that matter. I mean, if look, if any of you who are following pagan religion and you heard me just get it just howlingly, hilariously wrong what it is that you believe, again, no offense is intended, and I welcome your correction. I'm If you want me to, I'll even read it on mic, you know? I mean, you know, my ego is not at stake here. I want to make sure that I'm giving you listeners accurate information here. So... But anyway, so all of this is to say, I don't think, and this is this is my point, I don't think that Jehovah, I don't think he would respect any kind of territorial claims uh, uh, that other gods have or might have. I honestly don't think he'd give a shit. I really don't. I don't think he would care. I think he would regard justice as being... Honestly, something that he might have a monopoly on. If anything, I think he might be the one who has the territorial claims. And I guess if you want to fit that into some kind of a wider religious framework of the DC universe, you could say that the very existence of the specter is basically... It's basically uh, the god of Christianity or some variation on the god of Christianity... uh, basically establishing, or at least trying to claim, some kind of a monopoly on on a define uh, judgment and uh, retribution, you know? Now, maybe that's uh, theological territory that um, John John Ostrander didn't want to go into when he's writing uh, The Spectre. It's been a long time since I've read that series, so maybe that is an element of The Spectre, and I've just forgotten it. But my memory is he doesn't go into quite those depths of what the specter is and how his his vengeance works, right? But as you say, there are other deities that exist in the DC universe, none of whom, to your point, none of whom seem like they're in any in all that great a rush to pronounce judgment on anybody. And so you could see it as maybe the other deities of the DC universe are content to let uh, Jehovah do that task since, since for whatever reason, they're unwilling or unable or just too busy or, or just whatever, you know? So I don't know. I mean, all in all, you know, I, I do think that there are a lot of different ways of, um, of, of viewing this. And to be honest with you, I mean, this is stuff, it's been forever since I recorded that, that Spectre episode. So I don't really completely remember everything that was said in there, but I do think I questioned how all of that would work in the context of a DC universe that apparently includes Jehovah as well as deities of some kind or another. And so how would that work? And so, I don't know. Um, it is kind of a religious minefield, you know, if you're talking to somebody who maybe is a little overly sensitive to that sort of thing. And I hope I haven't been. And um, I certainly hope I haven't been upsetting to anybody else. But it I don't know. It, it is it is food for thought, you know. If nothing else, I mean, I do kind of I do sort of wonder how how all that all that works out. So anyway, that's that stuff though. Now to get back into uh, Gene's email, he goes on to say, I don't know if any of these questions have been addressed. Keep in mind that I'm coming at this while Jehovah exists. He isn't all powerful, insanely powerful, yes, but he can't just run roughshod over other gods. There's probably more of a balance of power going on, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, uh, Gene, there you go. I mean, those are pretty much my thoughts. And again, I, 
You know, I hope I haven't come off as like chauvinistic or rude or caustic or anything like that. You know, I'm just, I'm just saying that my view of God is shaped completely by my religious faith. And so that's just how I would see things playing out. So I really hope that this hasn't been, this hasn't come off as abrasive, you know, is what I'm trying to say, you know, because I really do like you, Gene. I think you're a great guy. I think you're, you know, just super cool. You're a great podcaster in your own right. And I think of you as a friend. And so it, you know, the last thing I would ever want to do is publicly insult a friend. So I really hope that you understand that this is me just spitballing ideas and it's not like I have, uh, you know, some kind of a, a special information on this or anything, because, you know, obviously I, I really don't. So I, I just, I, I hope all that is understood and I hope you uh, take all this in, in the way in which it's intended. So anyway, and so that's pretty much the end of, um, uh, uh, Gene's email. Now, I, there are a couple of things I want to mention. So, like I say, Gene is the host of The Hammer Strikes, which you can find at thehammerstrikes.com. He's also the lead writer for The Hammer Strikes blog, which you can find at thehammerstrikes.blogspot.com. Um, he's also a, a participant of uh, the Quantum Cast and also uh, Anime Freaks, which you can find at uh, twotruefreaks.com. And at least as far as The Hammer Strikes is concerned, you can find um, the uh, Patreon for The Hammer Strikes at patreon.com slash thehammerstrikes. So just uh, look for all that. That's where you can find Gene. Gene's a great guy. He's a great friend. He's a great podcaster. He's extremely knowledgeable about um, religion. Again, coming at it, I think, from a very different point of view than I'm coming at it. You know, I mean, I kind of come from a very, let's face it, Christian tr uh, tradition, specifically Catholicism. Um, but nevertheless, I do think that, you know, Gene, he knows, my sense of Gene is that he knows a lot more about religion. He's done more studying than he's maybe said, said aloud in public. If I'm wrong about that, Gene, I'm, I, again, I'm willing to acknowledge my mistake, but you just seem like somebody who's done, you haven't just done your homework, you've done a shit ton of homework. So again, if I'm wrong about that, well, my apologies, but it just seems like you know an awful lot, you know? So uh, anyway, but guys, point is, Gene is a great guy. He's a great podcaster, a great blogger. He's somebody that you should definitely be following. And again, he's got a Patreon, so you may, you know, if you feel inclined, you may want to throw him, uh, throw him a couple of bucks. And because uh, I do know that, you know, financial donations for a lot of podcasters who actively ask for them, they are always greatly appreciated. And if ever there was somebody who deserves some kind of financial uh, support, I would say that it's Gene. So uh, anyway, so that's Gene Hendricks, great guy. And Gene, thank you for taking the time to write in. This is a, obviously there was a lot to say about your email. And that's one of the things that I really like about you is that you have a lot of substance in everything that you do. And it's easy for me to play off of stuff like that. And uh, Gene, just so you know, um, I owe you one episode for sure, possibly two, but there's one episode that I can swear to of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality that I promised that you would be involved in. I have not forgotten about that. And some way or another, I'm gonna find a way to make that happen. I'm reaffirming that promise to you right now, publicly, so that way everyone knows. So, uh, but thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to write in. And most of all, just thanks for being an awesome guy. I just think you're a great guy and a, a good friend. So thank you very much. And so that, I think, is pretty much it for me for this week. Now, as to next week, guys, this is going to be the big one. This is episode 299. It's not just every podcast 
that can make it to 299 episodes, but that's where I'm going to go. So 299 episodes, this is going to be the big one, and uh, but that's going to be for next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I'll see you next time. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So, join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus... Media Enterprises Limited Production, 
in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.